0: I am Sam J. Jones, Flash Gordon. Okay. Oh, excuse me. That's okay. It's been a long day. (laughs) The dome always does that to me, okay? It's good to be seen. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) And you're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Sci-Fi Saturday Night.
1: tell your people to surrender now and avoid
0: war.
2: Don't think you get me so easily!
0: It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule.
2: It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, and that we you to give your a witchcraft. You expect me to
0: believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed
2: up. Sci-Fi Saturday
0: Night. From a very dark corner of sub-level 12 in Area 51, hello and happy new year and stuff, and welcome to TalkCast 337, this week's edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Tonight, with all new stuff. Well, actually, not much new except for some super cool holiday presents, and I'm the Dome. Joining the talkcast tonight, the rest of the gang from the Act in Action uh, TARDIS reseeding company, our technical anarchist, our button-pushing, keyboard-clacking sonic screwdriver and girl genius, covered in packing Excelsior, Grianna. Hey. Nice energy. <laughs> From the stacks of her personal space in the Dank Dungeon's long drive to nowhere, she befriends robots, invites aliens to lunch, and has been known to have knitting circles in Stonehenge. Welcome, Sombrarian. Hey. Guy walks into a Comic-Con and says, where are all the back issues of the original Guardians of the Galaxy comic? At that point, you know, it's either L. Ron Howard Or our very own futurist and gamer, returning from months and months of never to be remembered events, our Midwestern correspondent, the guy who really likes shiny stuff, Awake by Java. What's the most common color of a Pegasus? White? Silver. Silver? I'm thinking. White? Really?
2: Yeah.
0: I'm thinking silver, and I'm not sure why. I think it's, I think this one is supposed to be brown. Yeah. Uh, So it's adult (laughs) coloring night tonight. (laughs) Our guest tonight is Jeff Klein of uh, Darby Pop Publishing. Uh, We're going to discuss Darby Pop Publishing, Jeff Klein's career, and some new stuff coming out from Darby Pop. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's uh, nice to be back, let me tell you. We have been uh, away from the podcast for about two and a half months. So if uh, things don't sound right or things don't work right, <laughs> guess what? It'll be just like every other show. Um, so, Java, you're not playing a game tonight?
2: No. We aren't twitching? Well, we're Are still
0: we're still, we're still twitching. It's just not being broadcast.
2: Uh-huh.
0: So it's private twitching. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, no, your no. Your own uh, personal twitch. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't handle it tonight. So, out comes the Chronicles of Narnia coloring book. Perfect. Yeah. So, Jeff Klein, uh, And I have met a number of times at different conventions here and there over the years. And uh, in in researching, Jeff, you coming in tonight, I realized that you have spent about 25 years in the world of uh, cartoons and stuff. That's true. How did you get involved in that? Where did that where did that come from? I know you graduated from BU. And at the end of that, uh, what, what, what was the leap from there to animation?
1: Uh, I graduated from BU in broadcasting and film. And two or three months after, not even that long after graduation, I actually moved to Los Angeles to, uh, you know, seek fame and fortune. Um, I had been a newspaper reporter Uh, On the East Coast, I had done some magazine writing, especially for horror movie magazines. Um, So the little that I kind of understood about the the film and TV business was much more the Roger Corman independent world than the the network and studio world. Um, So my first gigs out in Los Angeles were actually working for Roger Corman, or I say working, but I didn't get paid, or Charlie Band, uh, who had Empire at that point. Um, And from there, I transitioned for a while into features, studio features, but um, got really bored because, unlike with Roger and Charlie, there were there were almost no deadlines. Things seemed to drag forever. So somebody suggested I work in TV. Um, I did that on the executive level for about six years at NBC and then at Columbia. Um, then I transitioned into writing and producing at the behest of a, uh, a good writer friend of mine named Frank Lupo, who had been Stephen Cannell's partner and they had co-created A Team and Wise Guy, Stingray, Riptide, a bunch of other shows. Uh, and he was he asked if I would. I'm uh, interested in becoming his partner, his writing partner. He'd teach me how to write and produce for TV if I would help him sell. Uh, I thought that was too good an offer to refuse.
0: I was going to say, what a great gesture that was.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. It was pretty fantastic. It was. Uh, it was a result of me going through a bunch of other stuff and trying to figure out. You know, did I want to stay in the executive path? Uh, did I want to jump? And he really wanted me to jump. So he made it as attractive as he possibly could. And he was really good to his word. For the next two years, um, he really did teach me how to how to do it. Uh, and then I spent next few years exclusively in prime time uh... working for sony uh... on some pilots and things and then they started an animation division um, and the first show they were going to produce well actually they didn't even know that so the guy who was going to run that division was a guy named sander schwartz who eventually ran warner brothers animation and, and a number of other places um, and i had worked with sander when he was a business affairs executive at sony i'd been running drama series development for sony which is what columbia became um, And we became friends. So he got this job to start this division. And the first thing he was supposed to work on adapting was Jumanji. So I got a call kind of out of the blue from him asking if I had ever seen the movie. Uh, And I had. And I said, yeah, Robin Williams, Harry, Lost in the Jungle. Um, And (laughs) Sander asked me if I could write up a few pages on how it would do as an animated series. Um, I actually didn't really have the time to do it. I was about to jump and go do a live-action pilot uh, down in Atlanta. Um, but he convinced me, so I watched the movie again. I wrote up about ten or twelve pages. I faxed them to him because it was that long ago that you would fax these things. Um, I really put his name on them, if I remember correctly, because for me it was just I was just doing a favor. And then uh, about a month later, I read in the trade that Juman, the trades meaning Variety and the Reporter, that Jumanji was ordered. It was going to be the first uh, Sony animated series for the division that was going to go on UPN, which was a new network that was doing saturday morning programming and i was going to produce it uh which shocked me but um (laughs) yeah exactly i can i can pretty much get talked into anything with the words come on it'll be fun uh or something like that and that's what sanders said and so i was willing to give it a shot and in fact it was a blast and jumanji led to i think the next one was extreme ghostbusters which led to men in black the animated series and that was about you know more than a thousand episodes ago, and I think something like 18 animated series ago.
0: So they would just kind of come to you with new productions and go, here you go? Um, well,
1: usually, what would happen is they'd have, specific to Sony, they'd have a property. They'd have something like Men in Black that they had a pretty good idea they wanted to do as an animated series. And the reason for doing the cartoons at that point was to bridge the gap between maybe the first movie and a sequel. To keep it in the in the zeitgeist, to um, create a reason to have a a long-term toy line rather than a really short-life toy line, Um, but they wouldn't necessarily know, you know, what they wanted to do with it as a TV series. So um, a lot of times they came to me with a title and and all the the movie and the existing backstory. But part of my job was to put together a team and try to figure out, you know, what's that series going to be. So a lot of times I would write the Bible, um, which is kind of the breakdown of what, who are the characters, what's the world, what are the rules, what's the franchise, how's the show work, um, and then I would stay on to actually hire everybody and, and run the series. And um, you know, During the heyday at Sony, I was doing three shows at a time for them, and I was also still working in primetime as well. Um, and my favorite time ever was when I had uh, a series on ABC, a live-action series on ABC called That Was Then in primetime, which unfortunately did not last very long, but I that was fantastic. While I had three series going for Sony, and I actually set up, or I, we found stages right across the street, literally from the Sony Animation Studio. So I would get there at like 6 a.m., spend a few hours in the live-action offices, go over to the animation offices for a couple hours, and just go back and forth until 10 or 11 at night and do the whole thing again the next day. Um, and that was actually fantastic.
0: Now, this was happening at a time that where Saturday mornings... Were pretty much laid out for animated series, and it was like you know none none of this you know ocean adventure and let's let's hunt for wombats in Peru. It was it was like Cartoon Alley from like eight thirty in the morning till around eleven thirty every Saturday, and you had some of the coolest stuff happening there because basically. That was my prime time. <laughs> Saturday mornings. Because I would just, I've always loved animated uh, cartoons as opposed to, I guess, unanimated cartoons. In any case, uh, you did Men in Black, the animated series, which you mentioned, and also Jackie Chan Adventures, which was, those were my two favorites during that time period. Yeah, obviously two of my
1: favorites as well, and What's interesting about that time is the competition for Saturday morning was fierce at that time. You had Fox Kids who were, were kicking butt with X-Men, um, Kids WB, which, who had a number of shows for, UPN was still around, plus you had the, the quote-unquote big three networks of ABC, CBS, and NBC all programming Saturday morning cartoons. It was a pretty incredible time to be a kid, actually.
0: And it was a inc- pretty incredible time for you to be right at the crest of that before it started going away around 2005-2006.
1: Yeah, you know, it went away as far as the Saturday morning part of it is concerned, and I definitely miss that. I definitely miss um, the, the, the fact that, you, again, you had six networks competing against each other. And as a kid myself, that's what I grew up on. I grew up on, at the time, it was three networks, but I grew up on those three networks, and you'd actually join the club of the network that you had the most affiliation with. <laughs> it was actually in yeah. comic books. They'd advertise, you know, Funshine Saturday on ABC, and you'd join the Funshine Saturday Club, and you'd get a button and a certificate and, uh, you know, a list of the shows that were going to be on, and you'd watch the preview show the Friday night before the Saturday morning shows premiered. All three networks at the exact same time would run a preview show where they'd have some star of the network um, hosting clips of the shows that were going to premiere the next morning. And flipping <laughs> back and forth, because you couldn't take anything back then, flipping back and forth between those three shows was a ritual. That you would do, and try to pick out which shows you were going to watch, and you'd circle them in TV guide, and you, you know, that was how you spent your Saturday mornings.
2: And if you were me, you had like knock down, drag out fights with your little brother about which one you were going to watch. <coughs> Absolutely. And I won because I was physically bigger <laughs> and <laughs> <don't remember>. smarter.
0: <laughs> so, uh, and, and you're what? still working in in animation. I am. So, you know, one of the things that happened is those network
1: Saturday mornings went away, but then you had the rise of the cable channels, the Nickelodeons, the Disney channels, both the the preschool versions and um, the older versions, um, things like Cartoon Network, HBO Family. So, you know, luckily, um, I've been able to continue working animation for folks like that. And then most recently, now it's probably, I don't know, six years ago maybe, um, Hasbro bought a network. It was Discovery. Uh, They renamed it The Hub, and I was the first person Hasbro brought in to sort of set up a studio for them and produce the first series, which was Transformers Prime, and that led to me doing two more Transformers series plus a G.I. Joe series. Um, So as long as there's outlets, I am happy to produce animation for anybody who who will have it. Um, And right now, quite honestly, as much as I may miss the shows of my childhood or even those shows that I worked on in the 80s, in the early 90s, this is really a golden age of, of animation. I mean, the, the choices, the different kinds of shows, the breadth, the quality of the animation and the writing has never been higher than it is right now.
0: And the, the cool thing was, aside from being able to do what you want to do and having fun doing it, you also won a, a, a ton of daytime Emmys for animation and an Annie Award, which I did not know existed. <laughs> The Annies would probably be very hurt to hear you say that. but uh, I know, and I feel bad about that, too. Because I, I was reading in your bio that you won an Annie Award, and I'm going, cool. What's that? Exactly. That's
2: actually a really amazing connection. I don't know if you know, but BU's archives in the library has a collection, has a large collection of Little Orphan Annie comics. I did not know that. And you graduated from, it was that, it like, osmosed out into the ether.
0: Nicely done. All
2: along, all along Com Ave there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so for the people
1: who don't know what the hell you're talking about, Boston University uh, is actually on... Various buildings and the and the college of communications are actually on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston.
2: The worst road in the world for both <laughs> pedestrians and drivers.
1: I, it's not the worst street in the world for pedestrians. It's, it, Boston in general is not a great place to be a driver. That's
2: true. It's true. Well, I feel like for pedestrians, the drivers get so annoyed that they start to like aim for you. That's true. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it becomes a sport. Tetris two thousand. Absolutely.
2: Anyway, we'll stop reminiscing about BU now. I didn't realize, so obviously you went to BU. I didn't. I worked in their library for years, though. So I am very familiar with the area and with the library collections and not much else.
0: <laughs> so what was it that took you out of this incredibly cool world of animation and said, you know, uh, I'm really thinking I want to do publishing now. Where did that come from?
1: Well, first of all, it's not an either or. Um, You know, I started the comic book company, Darby Pop Publishing, about three and a half years ago when I was still producing some of the Transformers series for Hasbro. Um, And basically what happened was I lived in Los Angeles for 20 plus years. Um, Got married, had a child, Darby, whom the company is named after. Um, and when she turned five, my wife and I kind of looked at each other. We were both from the East Coast, raised on the East Coast, and kind of decided that if we were ever going to try to raise her somewhere else, and we had talked about that for a long time, that you know, kindergarten was probably the time to do it. After that, she was going to be too old to think snow was fun. If she had never been exposed to it, she was going to get the snow and then decide this is horrible. So we actually left Los Angeles in 2008 um, and moved to southern Maine, which is where I live now, Um, and the Hasbro gig required me to go back and forth for the next five and a half years every 10 days. So I would do two weeks in LA and one weekend and then one weekend, two weekends in, uh, in Maine. And eventually after five and a half years, that got to be just a little too much. So the comic books grew out of a desire to figure out something I could do from Maine that would require me to be in LA less often. Um, And still be able to work with all my writer and artist friends from the animation because a lot of those folks are the people who get involved with uh, creating the comics for WPOP. Um, And the thought was that we can make comic books and I won't have to be in L.A. quite as often to pitch things because the books can speak for themselves. So that was the genesis of it.
0: And and from kind of a little acorn of, hey, here's an idea, uh, you've put together some amazing titles. Thank you. And actually, Uh,
1: acorn's a great uh, word because it really started with me thinking, oh, you know, I have this one idea, indestructible. I'd really like to do it as a comic book. I'm going to see how I can make that happen. I met with some industry professionals because I knew very, very little about comic books other than as a fan. Um, And then I started mentioning to a couple of my writer friends what I was doing, and suddenly everybody had an idea, and it became one book that I was going to write, to, Okay, well, if I'm doing all this research and I'm putting together this mechanism to to do my own book, I can do your book too, Eric Garcia, or I can do your I can do your book too, John Raffo, um, and that's where it really grew from. It grew from an acorn to what's now you know a small forest, but definitely a, a forest.
0: It's what what you've got in, in Darby Pop is original. You've you've got projects that stand on their own and, uh, are very well-defined, well-thought-out fun stuff, but they're, they're all original stuff. And, and I mean, that's, that's the thing that, that I find most exciting about what it is that you're doing. And speaking of exciting, can we talk a little bit about your new project, which is, uh, Bruce Lee, the dragon rises.
1: We can, but I'm actually going to, I'm going to key off on one thing you just said uh, Uh a second ago. I'm going to, I'm going to circle back for you because you're you're exactly right. I think one of the things that can become a little frustrating in the state of television today is, and and movies too, so much of it is based on existing franchises. So much of it is sequels and remakes. um, And sometimes it can be very hard to get something original into the marketplace. So that was, that was largely from a creative satisfaction standpoint, that's where Derby Pop Publishing grew out of for both me and a lot of the other creatives that are working in it. Um, a desire to do original stuff and have it exist. Maybe you never can get it sold to movies and TV, but that's not the number one goal. The number one goal is to sort of you know, see it realized in some fashion, and sequential storytelling is a, a great way to do that.
0: Well, I mean, that's when, when you talk to a lot of independent artists who have ideas for comic books or ideas for graphic novels the consensus that they're saying is is not i mean this needs to be mass marketed and it has to be a worldwide phenomenon and there has to be sequels and there have to be spin-offs what they're saying is i really want to get this out get it realized and see if see if it has a life on its own and that's what uh that's what You've got you've got these incredibly different titles, these incredibly different stories, all with their own separate little lives. And it's wonderful stuff.
1: It is. I I completely agree. Creatively, comic books have been incredibly satisfying from a business standpoint. It's a tough world to be in. Um, You know, there's lots of new books every month and there's five big companies and a whole lot of other players. So it can be mm-hmm. very, very hard to get eyeballs. It can be very, very hard to get stores to order you if you don't have Spider-Man or a known TV uh, title, you know, that they, they, they kind of already have an idea of what they're buying. Um, and it's hard because you're selling to two different audiences in some way. You're selling to the retailer who really is the gatekeeper for a lot of their customer base, and then you're also trying to sell to the customer, and you have to do both at the same time, and they're slightly different audiences. It's, it's definitely challenging on the business side, but on the creative side... Um it's a fantastic feeling when that book hits shelves. It really is.
0: So let's talk about the dragon. <laughs> rises. Bruce Lee the dragon rises. The dragon rises. Because one of the writers for it is actually Bruce Lee's daughter. That's right, Shannon Lee. How did this happen? How did the, how did you get this to work?
1: You know, I, it, it's nowhere near as complicated as um, as would probably make a better story. Uh, we were introduced to each other, Shannon Lee, and I were introduced to each other through a mutual friend who said, "I think you guys would like each other." And you know, Shannon had been had kind of taken over um, overseeing the Bruce Lee estate and kind of figuring out how to present her dad in a modern day in a way that was uh, both honored him, but you know, was also updated. For now, it wasn't wasn't stuck in. Um, only the past Um, and she'd been working really hard at at doing that and and getting the rights back to things that maybe they didn't have the rights to for a while Um, so we were introduced and we started talking and the idea of doing a comic book together came up pretty quickly and Shannon's awesome I don't know if you've had the the opportunity to meet her but um, she's really smart and really cool and really funny and ultimately I said to her that I would love to do a Bruce Lee comic if you will write it with me and she was all over that Um, and that's really where it started
0: that's a great story. <laughs> but how do you go from there to, putting, uh, to getting uh, Brandon McKinney to do the artwork? And by the way, the, the cover art for these, uh, these episodes are just amazing.
1: Well, the, the nice thing for me is the process of, of producing a comic book and producing an animation, animated series are actually pretty similar. Uh, producing a live-action series, too, it's actually surprisingly similar. So for the, in the case of Bruce Lee, for example, but this would translate to Men in Black, the animated series, or Godzilla, the animated series, or take your pick, Jackie Chan Adventures. Um, you start with Shannon and I sitting around a table, usually over food, because that's, that's how it works, um, just kicking around ideas. You know, We want to do a modern-day Bruce Lee. Well, how do we do that? We, do you want him to be 80 years old? Well, that doesn't seem like it would be a lot of fun. Well, how do we keep him the age he was, but still put him in the modern day. You know, what if we froze him? What if we said he never died? What if there, you kick around a bunch of different ideas? And you do that a few different meals, a few different days over email, over phone calls, and you start working up not just his story, but all right, who else lives in this world with him? And what are the rules of this world? And what does he want? And who are the bad guys? And, and you kind of craft really something very similar to the Bible that you would write for a television series. You craft a Bible for this comic book series. Um, and again, comics, as you mentioned, are so episodic. You use the word episodic, very similar to a TV series. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you do a lot of the same work then when it comes time, and this is where it gets, again, incredibly similar to animation. When it comes time that you really want to have an artist start helping you visualize it, you reach out to somebody. So in animation, I will look through a lot of portfolios. I will talk to people. I will talk to friends who I've worked with before um, and kind of hone in on this really feels like something I want to bring Dave Hartman in on and Jose Lopez in the case of Transformers Prime, for example. Um, or in the case of, of Bruce Lee, it was Brandon McKinney who had been one of my lead board artists on Transformers Prime and one of my lead board artists on Transformers uh, Robots in Disguise. And just, I think he did a, sh- uh, a series for us called Doberman uh, that I thought had a really good look, feel, and tone, and I knew that he'd get Bruce Lee because he had worked on Jackie Chan Adventures as well. So that's where, again, working with all these writers artists over the last 20 years or more um, make it a little bit easier to jumpstart something in comic books. We've brought a lot of people in to Darby Pop Publishing that I've never worked with before, and that's part of the fun for me is meeting new people and working with lots of new creatives. But the other side of it is Jose Lopez did a run of covers for us on... Uh, indestructible which was the first series we did you know Brandon did Doberman and now he's doing uh, Bruce Leak um, Kirk Van Warmer one of my lead board guys on a whole bunch of series from Winnie the Pooh to the Transformers series he did cover for us on Sidekick um, uh, Kevin Altieri did some did some uh, roughs for us to help us when we were falling behind a little bit on a book Seventh Sword it's it's really nice to have those guys and, and, and gals to reach out to um, in addition to this whole new world of of people who work more exclusively in comics, who I had never had the opportunity to work with before.
0: Did I answer the question? By the way. Yeah, uh, you kind of did. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we went around in a nice, nice, wonderful circle there. But yeah, you did. Okay. So, so, Darby Pop is got multiple titles. Uh, you do a lot of conventions every year.
1: We try we, absolutely.
0: Uh, yeah, and that in itself is a mind-numbing experience as
1: well. Although, honestly, for us, our, you know, in some ways, not in some ways, in every way, our best experience. We, you know, as I said, it can be a little frustrating trying to make yourself known when there's much bigger players with much deeper pockets and many more resources and, and years of history. Uh, it can be tough getting the attention of retailers. I mean, it can be tough getting the attention of potential readers. The place we seem to have the most success at that is at cons. Um, because we you know, we take them very seriously. I feel like if we, can, if we can grab you for 30 seconds and talk to you just a little bit about a couple of our titles, and we'll usually ask you what kind of stuff you like and what you're reading, if we can get you for 30 seconds, we can probably get you to look at one of our books. And if we can get you to look at one of our books, we've got a good shot of getting you to actually try one out, whether it's a single issue or a trade paperback. We have a pretty good conversion rate as far as that's concerned. That's why we do so many cons, because we find that kind of reaching out to that public directly is probably our most effective means of of getting our stuff out there.
0: Now, so you're doing all this stuff and it's a, by any stretch of the imagination, a very young company. And at the same time, you've done two versions of what you call breaking into comics contest. Yes. What's that all about?
1: Well, it actually started with, and this is, I'll bring it even more full circle. Uh, it started with this idea that in my career in television especially, I had some mentors and I, I had the opportunity, i had some opportunities that not everybody gets. Frank Lupo, you know, uh, becoming my partner. I actually um, was chosen for a thing, my very beginning of my TV career was the NBC Associates program, which was an executive training program that they picked one person a year for. I was able to do that. Um, So I I was really lucky in my career and had people who believed and supported and also some opportunities that not everybody gets. So in talking to people in the first year of Darby Pop, in talking to a lot of the folks we met at conventions and in talking to writer friends um, and just sort of reading the boards and and answering our mail, it became pretty obvious that despite the fact that it seems like comic books would be something that would be pretty easy to break into, I mean, the technology is such now that Almost anybody could self- publish, and with Kickstarter and other crowdsourcing, there's various ways to fund something. But the truth is, you can produce your own comic book, but it's very hard to get distribution. it's very hard to also have the resources to market it or you know advertise it or push it in some way. So amongst the small group that is the core of Darby Pop Publishing, we started kind of asking ourselves, is there a way to pay it forward just a little bit um, and create an opportunity for some of these folks who have been supportive of us, you know, turn around and be supportive of them. And we had our first Breaking Into Comics contest. And basically what we did was we asked um, anybody who wanted to be a writer in comic books, um, whether you had experience doing it or not, whether you'd already been published or not, to write a script, a one-shot, an origin story for a character named Stingray that was a part of our first arc in Indestructible, which is a, a book I wrote. And again, the first book we actually published. Um, and we expected, we were asking for a 22 page finished comic book script. And, and the promise was we would actually publish it as, a, as an issue. We'd put it out through distribution channels. It would be a floppy. Um, we'd put it up digitally and it would live and breathe. And there was a little bit of prize money, I believe, attached. Um, but really this was for the experience of getting published and working with the editorial that you, you know, that in the, in the case of working with Darby Pop, you're going to work with myself, Renee Gearling's our managing editor, uh, Christine Chester, who does all our marketing and social media. We have, a, you know, an infrastructure in place. So I expected we'd get maybe 10, maybe a dozen scripts for that first contest because it's a lot of work to write a 22-page comic script, and we had a very specific timeline for it, and it was not, you know, it was, it was aggressive because that's kind of the way comics really work. Um, and we ended up getting over 100 submissions from around the world. And we ended up picking a script by a guy named Jeff Marzik, who was such a pleasure to work with and who we liked so much. We actually ended up publishing the next book he wrote, which is a book called Dead Man's Party that we published as a trade paperback. He'd been self-publishing that. We came in when he was um, wrapping up his second to last edition. we said, we'll put this out as a trade. We love you, and we love this, uh, with his partner, Scott Barnett. So that first contest went great. And, um, you know, for everybody involved. And so last year we did it again. But this time we wanted to reach out to more than just one winner. So we actually came up with the idea of doing a book called Women of Darby Pop. It was a double-sized floppy, meaning a, you know, a regular story issue, 44 pages. And it was made up of one- to four-page stories featuring any female character from any book in the Darby Pop line up to that point. Um, and this was open to both writers and artists. We were looking for writers to write, again, a one- to four-page script. and We were looking for artists to send us um, samples of sequential storytelling as well as a one-page pinup of of at least one female Derby Pop character. And once again, we were overwhelmed by the response. We ended up choosing, I believe it was 11 winners on the writing side and, and 10 winners on the art side because one of our art winners had to drop out at the last second and, and somebody did double duty. Um, but again, aggressive deadlines, um, working with our editorial, which maybe is a little bit more obsessive-compulsive than some other uh, companies might be, <laughs> but terrific, just a, a terrific experience, great stuff. Um, and and it's again, it seemed like the community, the comic book community really embraced it. So we get asked a lot, you know, are you going to do it again? When are you going to do it again? And I actually figured that we wouldn't do it again until maybe... The beginning of se- uh, the, the middle of 17, but because of a bunch of things falling into place, we actually just about two weeks ago launched Breaking Into Comics 3. Um, and that one, which you're actually going to have a bit of an exclusive here, the original deadline for that one was supposed to be January 20th, but I am telling you guys that that's actually going to be extended till February 10th because we've gotten so many requests to extend it due to the holidays. And somebody Very started nice. right around Christmas, New Year's which was probably a terrible idea, but sometimes we do stuff without <laughs> thinking about it. Um, so in, in fairness to all, including ourselves, quite honestly, because we're all still a little bit in a post-holiday hangover, um, we're sending it to February 10th, and this year's contest is specific to a book we published called Sidekicked. And Sidekicked is available as a trade. Uh, it's available as single issues digitally. It never came out as floppies, but the trade's available now on Amazon through comic book retailers. Um, done really, really well for us written by a guy named Russell Brettholz. So the idea is, again, we're looking for writers and artists in this case, but rather than doing 11 different writers and 10 different artists, which got a little bit hard to manage ultimately, um, we're looking for two and two. So we're asking writers to write an 11-page story, complete script, finished comic book script, although it doesn't have to be perfect in formatting by any means, um, focusing on one of two teams that are hinted at but not necessarily seen that much in the sidekick trade and that's the team of Atalanta and Frostbite or um, Flying Fox and Jolt and there's information about these characters if you go to our website at DarbyPop.com there's links that will take you to um, a little bit of a deeper dossier on some of these characters but again the bottom line is an, an adventure with Atalanta and Frostbite or Flying Fox and Jolt and the idea is give us either their first meeting or their first mission together or both, if you want to
0: complete those things.
1: So if they click on the link, uh, uh, d- 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 where is it? I just it's saw it. It's It comes up. It's usually one of the the top-of-page things. Otherwise, it'll be... It, oh,
0: breaking into Comics number 3, exactly. spotlighted on Sidekick. Yep. If you click on that, that gives you all the details that you need.
1: It gives you all the details that you need if you want to then dig a little deeper. Um, again, Sidekicked by uh, Russell Brettholz is up on Comixology and other digital formats. Also available as a trade, um, but you know, arguably, you could read the dossier um, and maybe maybe do the work without actually um, familiarizing yourself. But I wouldn't I wouldn't advise it. You you kind of you do want to be aware of tone. You want to be aware of kind of the way the world works. So I'd suggest you at least take a look at uh, borrowed sidekick from your library if you don't want to commit to purchasing it yourself. Um, and then for artists, the idea is send us one page of um, Sequential art, and it can be sequential art from anything. It doesn't need to be specific to Derby Pop. And a pinup of either Adla- Atalanta and Frostbite or Flying Fox and Jolt or both. Um, and once again, what we're going to do is we're going to pick, this time, two winners from all the scripts we receive. And we're going to pick two winners from the artists who submit. And we're going to pair them up. And we are going to publish these two stories as a digital issue a special digital issue of sidekick and as a bonus material in the reprint we're doing of the sidekick trade, because we are incredibly close to selling out of the sidekick trade. And quite honestly, by the time we probably finish this contest, we will have sold out of the sidekick trade. So we're going to republish it and to make it unique, we're going to include these two new 11 page stories in the reprint.
0: Very cool. Very cool. So uh, when you see Darby pops booth at a convention, First of all, it is jammed with books and artwork, and there are usually two or three authors and artists there as well. Yep. Drop by, say hi, tell them you heard about them from us. Check The stuff, because some of it is bound to be of interest because it is so eclectic and so wide-ranging and i you you can't fail to have a good time, Jeff. Thank you so much, man. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and i just to
1: put a a point on it. So with the contest, there is a small cash prize. It's a hundred bucks for the writers who win hundred bucks each, two hundred bucks each for the artists um, and some copies of the book, obviously. Uh, but this is really for folks who you know maybe have been only self publishing or have never been published. Um, it's a way to get a foot in the door. you know we we take it very seriously. We read absolutely everything. We look at absolutely everything that gets submitted. Um, if you have any questions at all, you can send questions to us through the website or via Twitter or Facebook or any other, other social media. Um, and thank you guys very much for uh, for letting us talk about it on uh, on the show. We appreciate it.
0: Well, we appreciate having you here. And uh, we're going to see you. Uh, gosh, where are, we, where are we going to see you next?
1: Uh, we're uh, going to be. We're going to actually be in Portland at the WizardCon in Portland, Oregon for the first time. We're doing that one for the first time. Oh, wow. Nice. Then we're going to be back at Emerald City in Seattle, which was a fantastic show. Uh, Both a great show and a great show for us last year when we did it. So we're back at that. Um, Then I know we're doing C2E2 in Chicago, um, which I think is uh, April, maybe late April. Um, Maybe we, we tend to do a couple of shows in L.A., WonderCon, um, the Los Angeles Comic Book Convention. We obviously do Gary Summers shows. Um, at
0: Northeast Comic
1: Con. Yeah. I know he's changing the venue and the dates may not all be set for the year, but we try to do those. Um, uh, you know, We've done a number of shows in Connecticut. We love doing free comic book day um, with, uh, with Jetpack Comics in New Hampshire. Um, they're always really good to us. Uh, so we, we try really hard to do at least a con or two a month. Um, more on the East coast cause that's where I am, but also a few on the West coast and the middle of the country because, um, Renee Geerlings is out on the West coast and we do have folks in the middle of the country as well. So, um, if there's a con we should be doing, if you've got a con you love and we haven't been there again, write us about it. Tell us about it. It may just be something that hasn't hit our radar yet.
0: Have you been to Granite Con yet?
1: We have, and we love Granite Con. We hope yeah, to return cool. to that one. Absolutely.
0: Good. Cause that, that's our kind of home base. Absolutely. Yep. And we will love to see you there. Well, Jeff, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And and it's it's been a real pleasure. And I hope to see you again soon, really soon. And uh, as you talk about the new stuff and everything else, enjoy it. Thank you. Re- Have a great New Year, everybody. Thank you very much.
2: Yes.
0: Do you know who's coming up in the next couple of
2: weeks? Not a clue.
0: On the 28th of January, Chris and Alan Hebert of HB Comics come by to discuss their Kickstarter for the new Team Synergy comic. And on February 4th, the Victoire returns for the hat trick. I don't know what trick that is, but there's a hat trick. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of PlanetCon, North Comic Con, and say hello to our friends at Super Mega Fest, Booksbooze.com and ComicArtHouse.com. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art, plus some of your favorite artists. And if you have a free moment, take a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My People, A Family, now on Amazon. And Earth. our intro music was provided by Round Watts And more of the same. I want to thank Jeff from Dark Pop for joining us tonight and just talking about his passion because there's some really cool stuff there. Many thanks to our gang for joining us tonight. From the Act in Action Time, Mark, the sweetheart of the soundboard, and woman of words, Priyana Zombrarian, thank you, ladies. Mm-hmm. She's not going to unmute, is she? No,
2: she's not.
0: Java, I hope you enjoyed your drawing tonight, and and next time we're twitching it. Yes. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus, we all refute entropy. Good night, Spider. Good night, everyone. Oh, I know.